The New Testament reading comes from the gospel according to Matthew. We're going to be reading chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. You will find that on your scripture sheet, or you will, if you have your Bible with you, please turn there and follow as I read. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to this message this morning, I want to take time, as I did last week, to tell you why we're here. If you're visiting this morning, we have been in a study in the gospel according to John. It's been exciting. It's been incredible. And I was looking forward after our Advent season to getting back to John, and we, we got back to John, and immediately, uh, almost immediately, we set it aside for another detour. Why? Why are we doing that? Well, from the earliest days of Christ's covenant reformed church, the leadership and congregation has had a clear vision of what we felt God has called us to do. We wanted a church built on the biblical doctrines, the biblical doctrines that came out of the Reformation. Our leadership team spent over a year creating a constitution that would be a strong theological foundation for just such a church. Now that meant that eventually there would need to be an election of elders and deacons as described in the New Testament, that we replaced that leadership team. As we celebrated our two-year anniversary at the end of October, 
our leadership reached the conclusion that it was time to do just that. And a process was developed that would accomplish this. The process would begin with a series of messages, a series of sermons describing how the Bible defines the offices of elder and deacon and what men should be qualified for this. I originally thought that such a series would only last two or three weeks at the most. However, as I began to think about it and work through this, the Holy Spirit changed my mind. One of the great problems, maybe the greatest problem, that the evangelical church has today is that a low view of the church, a low esteem for the church pervades Christianity. This is inside the church. We live in the midst of a culture that is saturated with a secular world and life view. That worldview has sought to marginalize the church for the last 2,000 years. And that's something we have seen in our lifetimes. We don't talk about this as it might happen in the future. We're talking about this is something that we have witnessed with our own eyes, ears, with our own lives. The church of Jesus Christ in our culture has been marginalized, pushed to the perimeter. Church attendance and membership have been declining for the last 50 years. And since 2000, the decline has become much more severe. Now, it's expected. It's expected that the secular world would have a low view of the church. They see the church as an archaic institution that no longer has a place in our modern world. But even, even inside the church, even inside evangelical Christianity, we are hearing and seeing the same low view of the church, the same low esteem, even inside Christianity. Most Christians have a completely relaxed attitude about the church. We hear, well, church membership and church attendance, they're not necessary for our faith. You can take it or leave it. It really doesn't matter. Folks, we're excited about this church. All of us are. But I'll tell you, if CCRC is to survive in this secular culture, we must. It's not an option. We must relearn the biblical view of the church of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit would not let me simply address a biblical view of elders and deacons and get on with it. The Holy Spirit pressed hard, showing me that addressing this lackadaisical attitude that's inside the church itself, 
this lackadaisical attitude about the church, that has to be answered. The very survival of this church depends on it. So that's why we've taken up this subject. We were in this passage last week. If you were not here, I commend it to you. Uh, we'll have a brief review of it this morning. But uh, the, the preacher wasn't much last week, but the Lord got his message across. And I would commend it to you. So we're taking up where we left off last week. The unique and unequaled assets of Christ's covenant reformed church. We saw last week in the 16th chapter of Matthew, Jesus spoke of the church, now hear me, as being as significant as his identity. What's his identity? He is the son of God, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he says the church is important as his identity. That's what we saw last week. As soon as that confession is made, a confession that I hope you've made, that you've looked at Christ and you've said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. As soon as he said that, he spoke of two other subjects. He spoke of the church And he spoke of his death and resurrection. Now here he's, and in doing that, he elevated the subject of the church of Jesus Christ, who we are. He elevated it in its insignificance, insignificance to his being the son of God, to his atoning death and resurrection. He spoke of these things together at this pivotal time. The New Testament tells us that Jesus founded the church. Not the disciples. It wasn't their idea. It was his. In this passage, he calls the church his church. Not the disciples' church, not your church, not my church. He says, it's my church. The New Testament tells us that Jesus also is the ruling head of the church. We saw last week that means he's the ruling head of Christ's covenant church. The New Testament tells us that he died to save his church. He calls the church his bride. He speaks of her as a husband who treasures his wife. Does that sound like Jesus held the church in low esteem? Of course not. How can a Christian say that he loves Jesus and follows Jesus, but has a take it or leave it attitude about the church? Such folks either are ignorant about what Jesus says concerning his church or they just simply don't believe him. They're either uninformed or they're saying, Jesus, you're lying. People, think about it this way. Eleven of the twelve disciples 
died a martyr's death out of their love for Jesus and their love for the church. What were they doing when they martyred? When they were martyred, what were they doing? They were in the middle of building the church of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just read the New Testament. You want to see an elevated, high view of the church? In the book of Acts, the the, the book of Acts describes the church as spreading from Jerusalem through Asia Minor to Western Europe. That's the subject of the book of Acts. And then there's the letter to the Romans. There's 1st and 2nd Corinthians. There's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and even the book of Revelation. What are all those books? They are letters. Letters written to churches. How in the world, how in the world can any evangelical church with this kind, even a, even a small glimpse, glimpsing view of what the New Testament says about the church, how in the world can we hold the church in low esteem in a take it or leave it lackadaisical attitude? In the passage before us this morning, Jesus gives the disciples a midterm exam. He says, takes them apart, takes them to Caesarea Philippi, away, away from their usual environs. And he says to the disciples, you've seen my miracles. You've heard my teaching. So, who do you say that I am? They confess that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus introduces two other subjects, the church and his atoning death and resurrection. At that pivotal moment, he says, now I'm going to tell you about my church and I'm going to tell you about my death and resurrection. He said, my church will be built on my identity. I'm going to build my church on this confession. My church will be built on the reality of my death and resurrection. My church will be built. It's not your individual Christian life that he's talking about here that will be built on his word. And of course we want that. It's not just our individual life that will be built on his identity and his death and resurrection. He said, my church will be built on this. You can't get away from it. What's he doing? He's showing the great significance of the church. That was the whole object of last week. But then Jesus elevates the significance of the church even more. As he tells the disciples the assets that he's going to give to the church. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what are these assets? What are the keys of the kingdom? Now, we're going to keep it simple. This can, sometimes the church makes this so complicated, and it's not. 
We all have keys to our houses. We use these keys to unlock the doors, to enter our houses. We use these same keys to lock our doors, to keep the world or unwanted people out. Notice Jesus did not say, I'll give you the key to my kingdom. Keys is plural. I'll give you the keys to my kingdom. So let's keep it simple. What did Jesus give his disciples? What did he tell them? To always keep, to always protect, and to always use. As you turn through the New Testament, you see over and over again, Jesus constantly pointed the disciples, pointed the people hearing his teaching, pointed toward the scriptures. He pointed toward God's word. He was saying, here you have salvation. Here you have eternal life. Look at Matthew 5, 17. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think that I've come to abolish or change God's word. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, look at this, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and the world and the church right now is walking all over those commandments, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying scripture will be your authority. That's an asset. It's one of the keys. Scripture will be your authority. It's always been the authority of the church, Old and New Testament. Look at Deuteronomy 4.2. Moses is preaching. The book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons preached by Moses. So listen to this. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, don't add to it, don't take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord. He says, the word that I've given you comes from God. Don't take away from it, don't add to it. Do you know where that's echoed? You remember our study in the book of Revelation? We came to the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, the last words of Christ. And what were the last words of Christ to his church? Look at 20, Revelation 22, 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words from the book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Folks, God's sense is simple. God's word is a key to the kingdom. How do we know about our sin? We didn't learn that at the university in our study of anthropology. We didn't learn that in some economics class. We learned
We learned about our sin from God's Word. How do we know about Jesus? We learned it from His Word. How do we know about the cross and resurrection? It's through His Word. Well, then He says, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Does that mean that the church can just write her own laws now? Can we declare murder is not a sin? Can we declare that all Hindus will be saved? Can we declare that abortion is not evil? That adultery is permissible? Sometimes the church seems to think that way. That's not what God was saying. Jesus was not giving his church the authority to rewrite the law and the gospel. Jesus was saying, my word is yours. And my word is so sure. It's absolute truth. It's immutable. It cannot be changed. It cannot be changed. One iota. So that whatever you bind on earth in accordance with my word, you can be sure it's already bound in heaven. Because it's my word. Jesus also gave the disciples the gospel. Look at Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. And he said to them, Jesus is preparing to leave. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Proclaim the cross and resurrection to the whole of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And whoever does not believe will be condemned. Matthew recorded this same conversation. Look at Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, again, he's preparing to leave. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus was not only saying, my word is yours. He was saying, the gospel is yours. Whatever you bind on earth in accordance with my word, you can be sure it's already bound in heaven. You can declare that faith in Jesus Christ saves because that's my word. You can declare adultery is sin because that's my gospel, my word. They are keys to the kingdom. It is through his word, it is through the gospel that we enter the church, that we're saved. So as the church, Christ's covenant reformed church, we're charged, we're charged as a church to keep God's word. We're charged with the responsibility of keeping, protecting, and using his word and the gospel. Use those keys. They're yours. 
the church. Then what did he tell the disciples to do when one believes? In each of the passages we've just read, think with me a minute. What did he tell them to do in that passage? Once they believed. In each passage we just read, he told the church to baptize, to anoint the new believers. Baptism is a visible sign of salvation. It's the sign itself does not save you. Baptism does not save. The significance of baptism is the inward reality that it signifies. It was an, baptism is an outward sign of what's happened on the inside. We've been cleansed, not because we've done so many good work. We've been cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice. We've been cleansed by the renewal, by the new creation of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is also, it grew out of the anointing system of the Old Testament. We've said this over and over again, and I hope one day it just becomes a part. You don't even have to think about it. You know it. It Baptism is an anointing. It grew out of the anointing system of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when they wanted to set aside an urn to be used in a tabernacle, they anointed it. When they wanted to separate a veil or a curtain, they anointed it. What were they doing? They were setting it apart for holy use. That's what baptism does. We see a baptism here, and it's a sign of inward cleansing, an outward sign of inward cleansing, and it's anointing. Setting the recipient apart for holy use. Think about this. The whole church, the church worldwide, the whole church, Christ's covenant reformed church. The whole church has been set apart for holy use. It's not only using an individual, this whole church has been. It's interesting. I read about it this week. After Martin Luther, the great reformer, came to grips with grace, turned his life upside down. After he, was dis after he discovered that he was justified by faith, faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, when he discovered that he was not justified by his own works, after that, whenever he would go through down times, and yes, Christians go through down times, when he went through periods of doubt or depression, Earlier, he would have said, I have believed. But he stopped saying, I have believed. He would say, I have been baptized. I've been baptized. I've been cleansed. I'm a sinner whose sin has been washed away. I've been baptized. I've been set apart for holy use. So what are the keys to the kingdom? The Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, baptism. Folks, it's not that difficult. I hope you'll go home today and somebody says to you, what was the sermon about? Well, it was about the keys of the kingdom. And you know how controversial that is and how people make it so difficult. And 
They'll say, well, what did you learn? I can tell you exactly what the keys of the kingdom are. That's what I learned. It's the word of God. It's the gospel. Baptism. Those are the keys of the kingdom. That's how we get into the kingdom. And these were all given to the church. Said, you keep these. They're yours. You protect them. Don't let them be corrupted. And you administer them. You use them. There's yet another key. Jesus gave his church two sacraments. The sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Last week we celebrated the Lord's Supper. One of those sacraments belongs to the church. And just as baptism... The sacraments, what's required of a sacrament is that is a visible sign of salvation. Just we've seen baptism was a visible sign of our salvation in that it's, it represents our cleansing. We use water, a cleansing agent, and it stands for the blood of Jesus Christ and for the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's a visible sign of salvation. Well, the Lord's table is a visible sign of salvation. It's a picture of our salvation. The bread represents the body sacrificed for our sin. The wine signifies his blood shed for our sins. After Jesus had administered the first supper, after the disciples had eaten the bread representing his body slain, this is my body given for you. After they had taken the wine representing the blood shed for their sins, Jesus told the disciples to keep this table, to keep celebrating this table until he returned. Keep coming back to this table. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Well, to whom do you proclaim it? To yourself, to each other. And the church as a whole coming to the Lord's table proclaims it to the world. You proclaim the death of Christ. Jesus was looking at the church and saying, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. The gospel is yours. My word is yours. Whatever you bind on earth in accordance with my word, you can be sure will be bound in heaven because it's my word, because it's my gospel. Baptism is yours to keep to protect and use in accordance with the word and the gospel. The Lord's table is yours to administer, to oversee. You'll be remembering your salvation. You'll be a reminder that it's by grace and grace alone. It will speak to you of a powerful love, the love of a father who gave his own son for God so loved the world. And he gave his only begotten son. You can say through that table, God loves me so much that what was most precious to him, he gave 
for a sinner like me. Folks, it's not so much that Jesus died on our behalf. He died in our place. That's powerful. These are the keys. God's Word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Now listen to me. We're almost done. But you've got to hear this. These keys are unique. The title said, the key, the message said, the unique keys. There you, how are they? How are they unique? Because they belong only to the church of Jesus Christ. He did not give these keys to the government, to any government. The government of the United States, the government of Russia, the government of China. He didn't give it to any of the governments. He did not give these keys to Wall Street, to the business community. He did not give them to the United Nations to keep and protect and to use. He did not give them to the media. He did not give them to the arts, the art community. He did not give them to the athletic world of sports. Now, certainly, he created all those institutions. He created all of them. But he does not call them to be his bride. He did not give them his spirit. He didn't say, here is my word, protect it, proclaim it. He didn't say that's your job as an institution of sports or the university or the government of any nation. The church is not called, likewise, we can say the church is not called to be the civil government. The church has gotten in awful trouble sometimes by trying to be the government. The church is not called to be Wall Street. The church is not called to be an army that rules by military might. Neither is the civil government given the keys to the kingdom. No army, no matter how many guns they boast, have been given the keys of the kingdom. So I have a question for you as we close. Who will keep, who will protect, and who will use the word of God if the church does not? Who will make sure no one adds or takes away from God's word if the church fails to do so? Who will speak God's word into this fallen and sinful world if the church does not? Who will baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit if the church does not? Is the secular world going to do that? <laughs> you know, let me tell you a story uh, of what happened to the secular world with the secular world during the French Revolution. 
the Republicans of the French Revolution, they're not the Republican Party here in this country. The Republicans, they were called that because they were for a new republic. But it, these men, the Republicans, were trying to free the land from Christianity. So what's happening here? It's happened before. But in, in, in doing this, trying to free France from Christianity, they introduced civil marriages and civil funerals. But people wanted more. So since they wanted more, they introduced civil baptisms. This is true. They would pour white wine on the baby's head and pronounce, I baptize you in the name of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Viva la republique. They carried a Christian ceremony in some form over into their unbelieving world. But I'll tell you, they wanted no part of the spiritual reality of Christianity. They wanted no part. This was not an effort to administer the keys of the kingdom. So I ask you, who will do it if the church doesn't? The secular world, that secular world out there will never preach the word of God to their society. The secular world will never preach Jesus and the Son of God as the Son of God and Son of Man. They will never tell, the secular world will never tell people around them to repent and believe the gospel. Come to the crucified Christ and be saved, they will never say that. They'll never urge the world to be baptized, to be anointed and set apart for holy use. They will never, they will never treasure the Lord's table. So I ask you again, if the church does not do this, who will? There's only one answer. No one. When you have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude about the church, you are only abetting the secular world. There's some halfway Christians out there that have a lackadaisical attitude about the church. But they speak as if they know what's happening out in this secular world, and they don't like it. Well, if they have a low view of the church, They're only abetting the secular world. People that do that are ensuring that their children and their grandchildren will not hear God's word. They will not hear the gospel. And they will not be saved. What is your most precious possession? If your house is burning down this afternoon... What would you grab to get out of that house? Well, let's change that. What's the most precious possession of the church? You know, sometimes we get carried away with this program or that program or this program. We talk about this glorious program that's doing this and this and this. Sometimes we count those programs as too precious. Sometimes 
we get carried away with the minister, he becomes too precious. Sometimes we get carried away with, we have these buildings, these wonderful buildings. And they become too precious. People, Jesus stands before us today. He's the same Jesus that stood with those disciples and spoke about his church. He has hear him. He's given Christ's covenant reformed church the keys to the kingdom. He's given us his word. He's given us his gospel. He's given us his baptism. He's given us his supper. How can any one of us, no matter how foolish, look to Jesus and say, well, I really think the church is superfluous. It's not a necessary part of my faith. I can get along fine without the church. People of that attitude will ultimately abandon Jesus, abandon his word, abandon his gospel, abandon his baptism, and abandon his table. These assets, by the way, are not only unique to the church, they're unequaled, they're unrivaled. Jesus said in this passage this morning, the gates of hell will not be able to stand against the church which goes forth with the power of his word, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the great sacraments of baptism and the Lord's table. Now, I know, I know what you think because I think the same way. These things are spiritual. We want hard money. We want gold and cash. I mean, gold and silver, don't we? We want buildings. We want this preacher without whom we can't go on as a church. No. No. None of those. None of those have the power. None of those have the power. It doesn't seem like much, does it? God's word, the gospel, baptism, the Lord's table. Really, we're going to fight that secular world out there? Yes. And Jesus said, the word the supreme gentleman of heaven said, the very gates of hell will not be able to stand against such assets. What was it Paul said? He came to this great city, most immoral, ungodly, sexual, perverse city in the Mediterranean world. He said he went to the city with his knees shook, were shaking when he went through the city gates, so full of fear. And what did he say as he wrote back after a church had been born, a church had been built? He wrote back to that church and he said, remember, I chose to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It conquered the city. And it's conquered your soul. And that's how I would ask you, has it conquered your soul? Has that conquered your soul? Then you know the power of that gospel. And all of God's people said, Amen.